This episode of Beyond the Bottom Line is brought to you by the Program on Entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management, where we're educating students for business and society. Welcome to this edition of Beyond the Bottom Line. This week, we are delighted to have in the studio with us Melissa Mash, who is co-founder of Dagny Dover, an incredible bag company. And Melissa, welcome to Yale. Thank you. Would love to hear a little bit about kind of your journey, early days, kind of going from coach to business school to launching the venture. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so I started my career at Coach right after NYU undergrad. And there I was managing its brick-and-mortar wholesale accounts, so managing accounts for Macy's as well as for Bloomingdale's. And then I helped launch the wholesale e-commerce channel. So that was Coach on Macy's.com, Nordstrom.com, and Dillard's.com. It was 2008 at the time, so e-commerce was starting to pick up steam. And I was learning a lot more about that customer, and people were becoming a lot more comfortable shopping online, especially for more expensive items. And um, after that experience, I really wanted international experience as well as the ability to manage a team abroad. So I decided to quit my job actually at Coach Corporate, which people thought I was insane for, but given that we were going into the global economic crisis. And um, I moved to London and, and tried to get a job there. And it was then that Coach called me up and said, hey, actually, we have a position for you that that we think would be pretty perfect. Um, we have a lot of problems at our first store in Europe, and, and we want someone to come in and, and fix everything. The store was at Heathrow Terminal 5. So it was a British Airways exclusive terminal, um, which is obviously a very different experience from all my other professional experiences having managed, uh, you know, U.S. brick and mortar wholesale accounts um, from afar, you know, on, on a high level instead of being in the store and speaking with customers on a daily basis. But I saw that there was such an opportunity to get feedback directly from customers about really why why they were compelled to buy something or why they weren't. And what I learned is that people had a lot of bag problems. People had a lot of problems with the fact that very few bags were made to store and protect a laptop or that bags were made out of materials that wouldn't withstand the elements outside. And if they got stuck in the rain or in a snowstorm, then their bag would be ruined as well. So I saw a lot of problems of people not being able to safely carry a water bottle in their bag and know that their tech, their thousand dollars of tech would be, would be protected. So there were a ton of problems that people had and they really didn't require high tech solutions. And I wanted to create a bag that that could do that, that could serve them from, you know, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night where they could live out of that bag and know exactly where everything was and that they could feel really confident and prepared for whatever the day threw at them. Um, so that's, in short, what I set out to to do is to create a, a brand that was really well-priced, really high quality. Um, again, just if you cut out a lot of the expensive CapEx that can be involved in building a brand with the expensive real estate and the expensive wholesale partners. If you spoke directly and built relationships with your customers online through digital, um, then you were able to, to capture that relationship and, and own that relationship and um, hopefully deliver products that really suited their lifestyles as well. So you were at Coach in Europe and then you decided that you wanted to go to Wharton or to yeah. get your MBA in general. Can you talk a little bit about that decision-making process? Yeah. Knowing that you wanted to launch a venture and then the value that you got from being at Wharton. Yeah. So um, at the time in 2009 when I had this idea that, hey, there was this real opportunity for a brand that was more millennial, that was more on the go, that could suit you know a more casual lifestyle that, again, didn't have like the logos all over it and didn't have... Um, that just looked more modern and was made out of more performance materials that I was excited to carry, et cetera. Um, 
I, I realized that I really needed a network and a platform to stand on for people to actually listen to me and for people to actually pay attention to what I was doing. It didn't matter that I had had this great career at Coach because how were people ever going to get to know me? So um, it was actually my now husband but boyfriend at the time. We had moved to London together uh, to, to have this career adventure. And he was like, you know, don't be like me and not think about business school until you're not in the perfect age range where, they, where they're going to want you. And, you know, look at what it did for one of our friends who had um, had a similar, you know, really good career at a consumer company prior. And then she went to HBS and suddenly she was, you know, able to get a lot of, you know, amazing jobs that, you know, frankly, she probably wouldn't have gotten without, without an MBA. And so I saw that and I said, like, you're right. I am sort of the right person who really needs this um, and who will, will really benefit from the experience and, of course, have a platform to get in front of people, to, um, you know, w- with this brand. So I went back to school and I I really wanted to go to Wharton um, because of its focus on entrepreneurship as well as its focus on retail. So that's amazing that Yale's also, um, you know, focusing on entrepreneurship and has amazing resources too because it makes such a big difference if there aren't competitions and if there aren't awards and, you know, if there aren't the right resources in place, then it's it's very hard to start a venture. Um, So I went back there and I actually got sidetracked with another business idea and started working on that and then realized, hey, this is a very technical idea. I'm not a technical person. What was the other idea? It was called Love and Covet. And it was based, and it's still a good idea. I still stand by the fact that someone needs to do this. But imagine a more shoppable Pinterest that's not like, like pins, but it's more like you're creating your future, your future life or your future self and the things that you want, right? So you have this highly visual of highly visual interface where you're showing your home and you have your closet and clothes that you want and you have your bathroom and the things that you want, the beauty products or the candles or whatever, or the home and, you know, the appliances that you want. And it's sort of like a universal registry where people who are in your social network, who you approve to see where you live and, you know, your shipping information can buy you presents and it'll just be sent straight to your home. And what where this came from was while I was in London living there, I had a friend stay with me and she's someone who I you know, it was like my best friend from when I was like four. So I didn't know her that well at that point. But she stayed with me. And afterwards, she emailed me saying, hey, I um, I, I want to send you a present. Can you send me your, your address? And I wasn't going to send her my address because I didn't need a present. I didn't need her to thank me in that way. Um, but as a result, uh, an opportunity for commerce was lost and an opportunity to surprise and delight someone was, was lost. And at the time, a Wharton professor had um, had written this book called Scroogeonomics, which is about the inefficiency of gift giving and about how many trillions of dollars are wasted on inefficient gift giving every year. So anyway, I wanted to solve that problem and make people happy and, you know, get get everyone more presents that they actually like. Um, and instead of having unused gift cards and things being, you know, not returned in your home and sitting there for years. Um, so that's that's something that I got sidetracked on. But then I was like, I know the bags. I'm going back to the bags for sure. So you have this idea for bags and you find these two co-founders, um, Jesse and Deepa. Can you talk a little bit about how you found them, how that team came together, why they were the right people at the right time. Yeah, I'd say that I'd say it's probably the hardest thing to do is finding the right co-founders. And because there's so many qualitative factors that go into this and it's definitely not a science and it's definitely um it's definitely a trial, you know? Like you you have to see is this going to work and you have to evaluate and you have to get people with the right sort of adaptability and personalities to to make it work. Um so Deepa and I have known each other since 2007. And uh, we were just friends from New York. And she happened to be one year behind me in business school. And so she was in one of my first focus groups. And she, as as well as many other of the women who came from the retail industry, who were in my focus groups, were like, we want to work on this with you. This is really cool. At the time, I was doing an independent study with um, Professor David Bell at Wharton. And so they joined my independent study. 
At the same time, I was also working with designers in New York or anywhere, really, um, digitally and asking them to put tech packs together so that I could send samples abroad. Um, and then I just couldn't afford to keep paying people anymore. Um, but at the time, I had already connected with Jesse, who had Jesse Dover, Dover, and um, she had won the Coach Accessories Design Competition in 2011 when she was still a student at Parsons. And so I knew that she understood sort of uh, you know, a business that was a fashion fashion house that was run like a business, um, and that you know, also the commerciality and all of that of the product and how important that was. Started working with her. Uh, eventually, couldn't afford to keep paying her on a freelance basis, but said like, "Hey, I know that I want two co-founders: one who's more analytical, and one who's more quantitative, and then the other who is the designer in the face of the brand, someone who people can really connect with and say like, "Hey, it's coming from this person's heart and soul, and I see they have a face and they're like me and all of that." So I wanted her. I was hoping that you know it would work out where where she would be able to be that person as well. And at the time, she was also interested in leaving her job um, at a corporate, you know, fashion place, company. And she was very interested in eventually starting her own line as well. So she was excited for the opportunity to potentially become a co-founder. And so she would come down and work on our, our independent study with us as well. So we were a group of five people. And at the end of the semester, um, I picked co-founders and uh, Deepa and Jesse and I made a lot of sense. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about, because this is one of the questions that we get both from students who are here and students who are looking at MBA programs, how you were able to balance that schoolwork life, yeah, everything that's going on um, in a way that allowed you to stay sane. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think what was really important because I, I had a liberal arts background and I didn't have formal business training was that I wanted to go to Wharton for specific skills that I wanted to develop that would help me in entrepreneurship. I wasn't there to like becoming, become like an accounting whiz, um, barely got, got past that one, you know, just like really had to, had to hone in on the things that made sense for me. Um, so like, for example, one of the classes I took that I really used a lot of information from and really served me well was called Legal Aspects of Entrepreneurship with Professor Bob Borghese at Wharton. And it's just fantastic because he's an entrepreneur as well as a lawyer, and he does a lot of you know work with, with entrepreneurs and sees the complexities of things that happen, but also um, he shows the accessibility and the feasibility of entrepreneurship, but also the things that you need to protect yourself against and, and look out for in ways that you can get around sort of tricky situations that investors might try to um, put you in or, or otherwise. Uh, so just like knowing that, that there are certain things I have to look out for and be vigilant about that came from certainly that class and having that foundation. And that was one of the most important things. I also spent my time doing things that would really serve me in the business where, you know, I didn't like join like, you know, I didn't join clubs that, that had like no end. I had, I I became the chair of the Wharton Entrepreneurship Conference of 2012. So I got to connect with all these investors who were brought in to do panels and Shark Tank competitions and so on. And, um, I got to connect with all these entrepreneurs who I brought on to do all these panels with. So, you know, I started to build my network there so that I wasn't starting from scratch when I was fundraising or when I was asking, you know, needed to ask founders for advice about how to do something thing. I, I already had a network and a relationship to build off of. So those are a couple examples. I also went on a supply chain, um, an operations and supply chain trek to a bunch of factories in China and Hong Kong. Um, so I got to see what factory life was really like. And I got to actually go to a coach factory and ask, you know, ask the owner some questions that, you know, only a student can kind of get away with asking, not a prospective client. So um, I really used my time in a very purposeful way uh, to get everything that, that would benefit the company 
So you guys have gone through this independent study. You've made the decision to jump forward and, and do this. Talk about those first few products, like how many products did you decide to launch with? How did you source the materials? Um, what was that process like? Yeah. So the first bag that we launched with is basically what you see online today as the Legend Tote, um, which is very similar to the Classic Tote. So they're very similar. One just holds a 15-inch laptop. The, the other holds a 13-inch. But the first bag that was basically the Legend Tote. And the idea was that this needed to be the bag that you can live out of, you know, Monday through Friday and from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., and it needs to be something that just holds all your stuff exactly where you want it. It's got to have the feet on the bottom of the bag. It's got to have the zip top. It's got to be able to stand upright on its own um, so that, you know, it's not falling over and spilling out all of your all of your items. Um, and it needs to be able to withstand the elements. You know, it needs to be able to wipe clean. I mean, we've had people literally send pictures of, of their children having drawn all over that coated canvas bag and it wipes clean within seconds because life is messy. And that's really what happens on a daily basis. Um so, you know, we really wanted to create something where it was just your go-to Monday through Friday bag. We also created what is now on the website seen as the Essentials Clutch Wallet, a variation of that at least. And the idea was that that was the day-to-night solution. So, you know, a lot of uh, women in particular have this problem of switching out from their wallets during the day and bringing that stuff in a closet, in a, in a clutch um, or a clutch in a clutch at night. And so then they will inevitably leave, you know, an ID or a credit card or cash in one or the other. And then they're screwed the next day or they're screwed at the bar, you know, something like that. And, you know, we've all, we've all done that at one point or another. And so we wanted to create a silhouette where you just had all of your important stuff in one accessory. And then you could just grab that and go out at night, coat check your bag, your bigger tote, or leave it at the office. But you have everything exactly where you need without having to do the switch out. So those were the two solutions. Those are the two bags that we launched with sort of hitting on the biggest solutions for a core demographic and we felt that if we can if we could nail that then of course we could go into additional sizing we could go into additional silhouettes but like that was going to be the bread and butter because we knew that there were consultants there were bankers there were lawyers there were teachers there were people who 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 desperately needed that silhouette in particular and who liked who liked the price point the the shape of that you know they were very comfortable with everything that that bag um was it wasn't such a major stretch to be like here carry a backpack when back in 2013 people weren't into backpacks you know what I mean like this was something that was like right up their alley so talk a little bit about I mean I know you mentioned a little bit about the fact that you were able to get in front of the customers when you were at the store in Heathrow talk a little bit about that process when you were doing the independent study when you were a student how you got in front of those customers and how you kind of gained those key insights that allowed you to come up with this kind of different bag. I mean, what you introduced was quite different at the time. In everything that we did, we always made sure that we had a ton of data to support anything that we anything that we did because this is expensive. Inventory is expensive. You can't make mistakes. Like once it's done, you know, this isn't like a tech product where you can iterate off of it and it's like software that you can update. Like you, you got to get it right or else you're stuck with really unproductive inventory. So for us, we had surveyed and focus grouped a thousand women and men to hear their biggest handbag frustrations and the exact key specs that we needed to make in the products before we even produced a single one. Um, so it was very specific where it wasn't good enough to just say, hey, I need a laptop sleeve or hey, I need someplace to put a water bottle. You need to be like, okay, what exact water bottles do you carry? You carry swell. You, you carry um, analgene. Okay, like those have very different diameters. Okay, we're going to need to make sure that we have a water bottle pouch that can accommodate all of those that are fan favorites or um hey i it's not good enough just to have a key leash you need to make sure that it stretches far enough that you can actually use it without having to unclip your keys so that you don't lose them or drop them um you know you need to be able to safely and comfortably 
you know, perhaps stumble home at 2 a.m. and and get through your front door and know that you're not going and know that like you have your keys exactly where you plan them to be. And same thing with with your car keys. Like you just need to know that you're not going to ever misplace them. So the key, you know, length of the the key leash was really important um, along with a lot of the other things as how big the phones are that you're carrying. And we need to make sure that the, that the cell phone pockets are accommodating the larger updates in technology that are constantly happening as phones were becoming bigger at that time. Um, so we were very specific in terms of what the specs needed to be for everything. I love the analogy that you used earlier, which was you've created a, like a smartphone, you've created a smart bag. Yeah. The dumb bags that were on Yeah, the I mean, market. like, it's just funny because whenever anyone uses their products, they're like, how did I not do this prior? And I just feel like I've been like, yeah, living in some like stone age up until now because it really is life-changing to know exactly where everything is in its exact spot. It's not like just about having a lot of pockets. It's about like, this is the cell phone pocket. This is where my, you know, my my work, um, you know, ID card is. This is where my lip, you know, lip glosses and pens are. Like you can't mess it up. It's There's one specific place for each thing. So you've got this idea. You've got your tech packs ready. Uh, let's talk about financing and manufacturing. You first manufactured stateside and then moved to Asia. Can you talk a little bit about how you found those early manufacturers and then how you were able to kind of transition over? So at the beginning, it was just all hustle where we wanted to produce here in New York because we needed to be able to see what the process looked like, iterate off of it in terms of like, hey, if the, you know, um, filling isn't 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 correct, um, fillers need to be adjusted, if the thread needs to be, if anything needs to be adjusted, we need to be able to do it in real time. So we needed to be able to produce the first round of pre-sale product in New York. Um, and so that was 2013. And so we did that. But, you know, New York is just not set up for mass production, nor is it set up for for sophisticated handbag production. And it all, it all comes down to the supply chain and about like the amount of different options that you have for these materials to make the product as best as it's going to be um, from a construction standpoint. And the U.S. does not have that um, anywhere close to to the capabilities of Asia, let alone the machinery, let alone the talent, et cetera. So, you know, 2013 was great in terms of us having a lot of velocity and us seeing like, hey, we have more demand than than our factory can, can turn around um, in, in this time period. That's fantastic. But they were basically begging us to go to Asia. They're like, we cannot keep up with this. You must you must go to Asia. And we're like, we know this. So we raised a seed round in 2014, a very small amount. And we went offline for a little over half the year. And then we were up and running again with another factory in Vietnam. We had, um, through one of our suppliers, connected with this factory that was very reputable and had worked with um, and continues to work with um, a lot of, you know, the best standing types of um, brands like Coach and Marc Jacobs, et cetera. And it was really good for for that stage of our business. Um, and then we brought in our VP of sourcing and production who has 20 years of experience with a ton of amazing factories. She has an amazing background from everywhere from Burberry and DVF to JCPenney and Banana, et cetera. So she she has a wide range of factory relationships. And she said, these are actually, there are a couple others that are really perfect for, for what you guys are doing and where you guys are going. So we moved that production to China um, about three years ago. So it's been a, you know, it's been an evolution. We only work with the best factories that work with the top uh, handbag mini, handbag brands that, that we all know. Um, and we follow a lot, if not more, uh, of the quality control codes that the, that the best people have, the best brands have. Um, but we also, you know, we also do things differently than, than a lot of those brands as well. So you are still an LLC, correct? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that decision and then how you thought through your fundraising strategy? Yeah. So 
for us, it was always important that we don't overcapitalize the business. I mean, you read a lot of headlines of people, um, brands raising, you know, 50 million, 100 million of whatever um, of capital. And it's like sung to be this, you know, amazing feat and this amazing, um, you know, milestone when that's like the exact opposite of everything that we want to do in life, where we want to make sure like, hey, we're only bringing in the capital that we know we can put to use immediately and that we know is going to get us to some you know additional level but we're not doing it just to have additional cash on hand um because frankly you you don't want extra cash on hand you want to make sure that um your valuation and everything involving your capital really makes sense for your business and that uh, you are going to be eventually attractive for a potential acquisition down the line. And so we are built very much like a traditional brand in how we finance the business where um, like the traditional guys, you know, really built very organically. Um, there weren't VCs back then and there, there, you know, capital wasn't so easy to get. It really was mom and pop, you know, sort of homegrown. Um, so we've, we've built very much in that way. We've raised very strategically a very small amount of capital, but enough to get us where we are. And then we just are very capital efficient in everything that we do. So in terms of your marketing strategy, you primarily are online e-commerce, but you also have a pop-up store in New York. Can you talk about that decision-making process and what does that look like going forward for the next two to three years? Yeah. So for us, it's really important that we own the relationship with our customer, which is why we've always wanted to connect with them via digital as well as, you know, in-store, um, in-store experiences. Um, we do have a portion of our business that we work with, uh, strategic retail partners, we're in Apple retail stores as well as Apple.com. We are on Nordstrom.com as well as um, 35 Nordstrom stores across the country. We're in Bandier. We're in most Equinox locations. Um, but these all serve a very specific purpose for us. And for us, it's really about getting exposure to a customer who may not be acquainted with us or a customer who is acquainted with us, but just infiltrating his or her life um, a little bit more. So we really like to focus on the efficiency of what we're seeing in digital spend um, by connecting with our customers directly on digital. Uh, and then also, again, uh, being able to, to really show them the full breadth of what we do and the full lifestyle of what we do when they understand how we work as a company instead of it being diluted by people who are maybe not giving that messaging um, as a third party or giving it inaccurately or, or whatever. We always like to own that dialogue and own that relationship, and, and it really works. I mean, people might get to know us through maybe a Nordstrom or um, or, or through ShopBop, but then they'll come back and, and go to our site and see the full breadth and all the limited edition colors and um, all the different sizes and silhouettes and they'll and they'll come back and shop through us because they know that they can get the full breadth of assortment there um, as well. So you've collaborated with people like Rachel Zoe before. Can you tell me what um, your dream collaboration would be in the future? Yeah. In the past, we've done a couple collaborations. Um, we haven't done one in a very long time. We are really much more focused on brands um, more so than individuals um, at this point. And I, I think, you know, for example, Nike would be a huge one for us. Um, we see a lot of synergies there in particular with the success of our neoprene collection, which is called our 365 collection. You know, I think there's a lot of legs in terms of being able to do something with a performance company, a performance brand like Nike. Um, Kith is another one that we're that we love and that we think that we we would be very well suited and interested in each other um, just based off of the lifestyle and the you know, premium nature and exclusive nature of the product, um, and the simple aesthetic as well. So we're, we're much more, you know, looking forward in terms of collaborations and working with, with brands going forward. So we've come to the end and typically I ask people what book they would recommend, but I'm going to ask you a little bit of a different question. 
What is your favorite Dagny Dover product? It's hard to choose just one. I would say I have two go-tos on a daily basis. Um, so one is the fanny pack, which is great for being hands-free because um, I, I just need that for my lifestyle right now. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not willing to carry something on one shoulder anymore. Um, so I love that. <clears throat> it has a place for your keys. It has a place for um, cards, for your Metro card, for sunglasses, for your phone. It like holds just the essentials and, you know, you don't have to worry about carrying anything. And then of course the backpack is everyone's fan favorite. It's just the most versatile bag ever, whether it's for school, whether it's for travel, whether it's for baby. Um, It's again, like everyone loves it. It's super unisex. You know, it's anyone, any industry, um, it's a fan favorite. People love working out in it. Um, yeah, bring it for travel, et cetera. And then I'd say like the third one is the indie backpack, which is a baby bag, which you can totally use as a normal backpack. Um, it's just a different silhouette and it holds a bit more and it's a little bit boxier, almost like a messenger backpack. I love that one as well. Cause it's just a little bit more masculine and a little bit more like I don't know, ruggedy, uh, edgy maybe. Um, and I, of course, am all about being hands-free. So I'm, I'm into those three. Awesome. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today and spending the day at Yale. Um, we look forward to watching the company grow and watching it grow as a founder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 